Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Your monthly magazine for August 2020 is out now and features a look at the wildest campaigns of the year so far. Whether the Wirecard scandal will usher in a new, more cooperative relationship between regulators and short sellers, and how Bill Ackman's good pandemic has helped the activists raise $4 billion. Plus, later in the show, Jason Booth will tell us about his recent interview with Jeff Ubben. For this episode, we are going to focus on the year's wildest campaigns. Our journalists have been busy putting together a top 10 from the first half of this year. I'll go through these alongside Activist Insights' Jason Booth, Josh Black, Eleanor O'Donnell, Yuri Struter and John Reeton, who will each join me. So let's start the countdown with number 10, Elliott Management at SoftBank Group, written by Josh Black. Well, the first thing I think is that SoftBank is a particularly wild company. Those who've covered M&A and the technology industry have known about this company's penchant for really wacky PowerPoints, big investments. They have a $100 billion venture capital fund and a larger-than-life CEO in Masayoshi's son, who's kind of a very atypical Japanese executive. And then Elliot came along earlier this year and invested nearly $3 billion into this stock, which, had it not been for AT&T last year, would have been their largest activist position ever. They embraced Sun and said they didn't need dramatic changes to the company, but they would like more transparency around investments that weren't in the Vision Fund. They wanted improved governance over the Vision Fund, and they wanted asset sales and buybacks. The campaign got a little bit wilder when the stock plummeted as a result of COVID-19 and its exposure to the debt markets. It subsequently recovered a long way despite nearly $20 billion worth of write-downs. The company has been very quick to announce asset sales and over $20 billion of share buybacks. So on that front, Elliott will be very happy indeed. There's been less kind of clarity and encouraging signals around the governance of the Vision Fund, but it looks like the bad news is mostly behind SoftBank and it's been able to monetize some of its position in T-Mobile and, and that gives investors more certainty because more of its assets are held in cash. Number nine sees career corporate governance improvement at Hanjin Cow, written by Jason Booth. Well, this is very much a old school family fight. It's not only career corporate governance improvement fund, KCAGI, which is the activist, but they've entailed the help of Heather Cho, the older sister of the chairman of the company, Cho Wante. Heather, who was previously best known as the nut rage heiress who once forced a Korean Airlines plane to return to escape because she didn't like the way the nuts were being served in first class. But it should be remembered that she's a substantial shareholder in the company, which her father ran for many years before he died. They together, uh, along with Bando Engineering, had a substantial stake in the company and a petition to basically remove the chairman and several other board members. Unfortunately for the activists, they didn't have the clout to do so at the May 27th shareholder meeting. There were some last minute defections by actually one of the activist nominees who decided at the last minute he wanted to go back to the management side. 
Also, uh, Delta Airlines, which is a major shareholder in Hanjin Cao, uh, didn't vote in support of, of the activists. Though that might change. I mean, since the vote, the activists have actually increased their stake. And it should, I should also note that because of the filing rules that many of their shares they held were not allowed to be voted in much. But now that they have almost 45% of the shares versus a little over 41% for the management, the expectation is they'll try again. And the question is, is will Delta Airlines sell their shares to the activists, vote for management? It's hard to say at this point. Number eight is MG Capital at HC2 Holdings, written by John Reeton. The interesting thing about this campaign was just how quickly it accelerated under the spotlight of COVID. So as the pandemic kind of grew more and more impactful in the market, the MG Capital campaign really kind of started to accelerate. It started off in January as a pretty straightforward proxy contest. And then MG Capital started to think that COVID might have actually caused HG2 to delay its meeting. And so it went from being a pretty normal proxy contest to being consensus solicitation. When that kicked off, both HG2 and MG Capital started trading a lot of barbs. Each of them were undermining the other quite effectively. The most interesting thing about this campaign really was that under all the support that MG Capital had, so it had partial backing from ISS and it had its full slate backed by Glass Lewis and Egan Jones. So it seemed like it was going towards an easy win. And then out of nowhere, it reached a settlement with HG2 for only two board seats. I think that kind of took a lot of people by surprise. Anyone who'd been watching that campaign for a while, it seemed like this was only going to be ending one way. So the two board seats was definitely surprising and it suggested that perhaps the consent solicitation didn't work out the way that MG Capital wanted it to. Either way, what happened at the end showed the activists really did get the win in the end. About two months after the settlement had kind of finished and the campaign was done and dusted, HD2 announced that Philip Falcone, who had been at the kind of epicentre of MG Capital's campaign, they wanted him out from the very off. He was ejected from the company. And so even after all of this, the kind of twists and turns of the consent solicitation, the settlement, Falcone eventually being forced out of the company showed that it was the activist who came out on top. Number seven is Starboard Value at GCP Applied Technologies, written by Eleanor O'Donnell. So Starboard was wild because they haven't taken a proxy fight to a shareholder vote literally since 2014, because everyone always usually settles with them. And I think GCP this time around just thought that with the pandemic and, you know, they put in a poison pill rights plan, they thought that they would be protected. But they went all the way to a shareholder vote and Starboard managed to take eight out of 10 of the seats. They were backed by ISS and Glass Lewis and the company's largest shareholder, 40 North Management. So even though they capped their own stake at 20% because they supported the poison pill, they still managed to walk away with the majority of the board. Number six is Bow Street at MacCalley Realty, written by Yuri Struter. Bow Street's fight with McKellar Realty was a full-on New Jersey turf war based on family control, loyalty and broken promises. When the dust finally settled, the activists controlled the board and installed a CEO of his choosing. The fight started in 2019 when Bow Street gained four seats in a proxy contest. However, the activists accused incumbents led by Chairman William Mack of paying lip service to corporate governance improvements and asset sales. Basically, Mack and CEO Michael DeMarco tried to buy time until a strategic portfolio shift from office properties to residential assets took hold. 
The strategy was widely regarded as sensible, but it failed to bring results quickly enough, both due to an onerous financing agreement that ate into profitability and lower than expected occupancy rates. COVID-19 was a further blow to the REIT's financials. So Bow Street argued that full board control was needed to end the influence of Chairman William Mack, who continued to serve despite receiving just 15% of the vote last year. With the support of both ISS and Glass-Lewis, Street took control of the board in a last-minute settlement and later named a new CEO. Number five is Hudson Executive Capital at USA Technologies, written by Josh Black. This was actually one of my personal favourites of the year. So the first thing that was wild was that Hudson Executive is a hedge fund launched by a former JP Morgan dealmaker that said at the outset that it wouldn't run proxy contests, it would only do friendly activism. And that was partly a marketing ploy, partly a kind of statement of philosophical intent, partly a way of gaining access to certain boardrooms. At USA Technologies, a company which has faced activists in the past, they came up against the situation where that approach didn't work. They started talking to the company, which was delinquent on its regulatory filings. The company then did a big fundraising that Hudson Executive was very unhappy about because it was dilutive and they didn't like the terms. So uh, Hudson Executive said, we're going to run our first ever proxy contest. We're going to seek to remove most of the board. Lots of activist situations start with a hedge fund saying we're going to run a proxy contest. Many, many of those contests settle. This one looked like it was going to go the distance. USA Technologies, the CEO resigned, they reshuffled their board, they made lots of compromises, but they also fought Hudson Executive at every turn. They were kind of slow to move on the activists' request for a special meeting. They ended up in court over when they would hold an annual meeting because they hadn't held one for nearly two years, when they finally agreed that they would do one at the end of April 2020. They announced it for April 30th, so the very last day that they possibly could. Then they threatened to sue Hudson Executive under an unusual Pennsylvania law that would force the activists to disgorge their profits in the event that they sold the stock higher than they bought it. So this was a very aggressive, very unusual defence, and it was wholly unsuccessful. Hudson Executive said as early as January that they'd collected proxies representing over 60% of shareholders. They weren't allowed to declare victory at that point because those proxies could still change, but they were able to announce to the market for a very clever legal strategy that they had these proxies in hand. And that allowed them to keep the pressure on. Why USA Technologies didn't settle at that point, I have no idea. They finally did so a few days before the annual meeting and lost most of their incumbent directors as a result. Number four is Esau Miwada at Sikeshwi House, written by Eleanor O'Donnell. So this one was wild more because of the environment in Japan. There's a lot of entrenchment in the boards kind of passed down between generations of families. And this one came about because the former chairman was pushed out two years ago after he looked at an investigation that found that a fraudulent land transaction that actually cost the company more than $51 million found the CEO at the time responsible for that scandal. 
but before WADA could get him out. The CEO at the time kind of rallied inside directors to then outvote the independent directors who were challenging his leadership and forced WADA out. So fast forward two years and WADA has come back and put forward an 11-person slate that kind of had, you know, the executives from foreign-based companies. There was sitting directors on that slate. There was a Japanese economics professor. Unfortunately, he didn't actually win the fight shareholders voted to elect all of the company's nominees but the dissident team is looking quite positive to be coming back next year they think you know it did outline a lot of malpractice of directors that were caught up in that scandal and highlighted some really serious employee morale issues so they're looking to come back in april 2021 to improve governance of that board now we've reached the top three the bronze medal goes to the campaign by xerox at hp written by john Reeton. I'm pretty sure this campaign would have been number one if everything had gone smoothly. It started off as a hostile takeover. Towards the end of last year, Xerox came in with a bid for HP. HP wasn't too interested in it, and it even suggested that Xerox might not have been able to do everything that they wanted to do at the company. That eventually led to Xerox actually putting together a board challenge. Things escalated and became even more hostile as the year came into effect. Xerox taking out HP shareholders for dinner parties, HP adopted a poison pill in an effort to actually stave off any Sega efforts. It was all coming to a head in March when Xerox had advanced its third bid and then it withdrew it quite quickly as COVID began to take effect. And I just feel that without the pandemic playing any role, this would have been a campaign that we all would have been focusing on for a long time. I don't think it would have been an easy one. In the end, it was just one that I think underlined the impact that COVID was having on the market as a whole. The silver medal goes to driver management at First United, written by Jason Booth. First of all, it was one of the most aggressive and, let's say, bad-tempered of the campaigns. Both sides obviously didn't think very much of each other and were very quick to denigrate and insult each other. And importantly, in this case, take legal action. Like many activist campaigns, this started with the shareholder driver management, headed by Abbott Cooper, to seek a sale The bank resisted. Cooper claimed that they were hiding information. The bank retaliated by saying the activist was disingenuous and irresponsible and and cut off negotiations with them. So Cooper nominated three directors for the board. Then what happened, uh, Maryland, this is a district, a local bank in Maryland, a financial regulator launched an investigation into whether Driver actually broke disclosure rules when it acquired at stake, uh, which could have resulted in a five-year ban on their voting shares. Now, Driver claimed that the bank itself or its directors coerced the regulator into launching the investigation, which was denied. And in the end, the regulator decided not to take any action. Even as it was, the activists didn't succeed in removing the directors. In fact, they walked away empty-handed. Apparently, the legal wrangling over the investigation into the stake acquisition continues, according to the activists. So, you know, even though the activist fight is over, the legal fight continues. Claiming gold and at number one in our list of the wildest campaigns so far this year is Amber Capital at Lagardere, written by Yuri Struter. So Yuri, tell us what made this the gold standard of wildness? Amber nominated to replace a majority of the board, which is unheard of in continental Europe. For instance, Amber typically seeks minority representation, but this case was particular because Lagardère's performance has been abysmal and its corporate governance is one of the worst in Europe. 
This is because Arnaud Lagardère, the son of late founder Jean-Luc, has just a 7% stake but exercises complete control via a so-called commandite structure. So there was indeed need for change. Another wild thing about this campaign is that it involved a former president and three local billionaires who stepped up to support Arnaud Lagardère. It also prompted the French market regulator to intervene discreetly in favor of the activist. So because of the support uh, Arnaud Lagardère received from the high-powered people in France, Amber lost. The last wild thing is that the saga at Lagardère is far from over. It could now pit two local billionaires against each other. So one of the billionaires, Vincent Bolloré, initially promised to be friendly, but now indicated he might seek board seats. This happened after Bernard Arnault, the CEO of luxury conglomerate Louis Vuitton, bought a minority stake in Arnaud Lagardère's investment vehicle. And now for some other stories you'll find in this month's magazine. Bill Ackman's good pandemic has allowed him to return to the big leagues with an audacious new strategy, capitalising on the popularity of blank check companies. In July, the activist completed the record-setting $4 billion initial public offering of Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, a special-purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, that could re-establish Ackman as a force in the investment world. Although the strategy is hardly activism in the traditional sense, the ability to write a multi-billion dollar cheque brings a lot of leverage to the boardroom of a target company. The fact that COVID-19 has increased the need to deleverage and find new sources of funding for private companies is in Tontine's favour. For some companies, they may be the only game in town, especially if you have a strained balance sheet or are not IPO ready. Rajiv Dars, a principal at Bulldog Investors, which has launched SPACs in the past, told Activist Insight Monthly in an interview. To learn more about how Ackman intends to use this new capital, check out the August issue of Activist Insight Monthly. The bankruptcy of German fintech company Wirecard amid charges of major fraud by senior management was a boon for short sellers who for years cited irregularities in the company's accounting practices. The scandal has also shone a critical light on the actions, or lack thereof, of market regulators and auditors, prompting many to advocate for greater scrutiny of the watchmen, rather than continued scepticism about short sellers. For short sellers, it was a long-fought victory, and in general a profitable one. Since 2016, short campaigns against Wirecard have seen an average total campaign return of 25% versus an average 14% for all other activist short campaigns at European companies, according to Activist Insight Shorts data. Find out more about this story by downloading your copy of Activist Insight Monthly now from our website. And now for something completely different. This month, Jason Booth interviewed Jeff Ubben, the founder and former CEO of Value Act Capital Partners, for a profile on his new fund, 
inclusive capital partners. So Jason, why has he left Value Act after 20 years and what are his ambitions? First of all, he came to the conclusion that activism in the traditional sense, looking for financial changes and return of capital from companies, was no longer of value to society or he didn't think generated the strongest possible returns. Instead, he became interested in the environmental issues and decided he really wanted to use investment as a tool for uh, getting companies to change their ways and make improvements that actually will help the environment or at least reduce the damage that they had been doing, along with other social situations. And he also believed that that in the long term would make the most money for his investors. So rather than do that value act, which continues its traditional model, he felt it was best to do it in the form of a uh, new investment firm. So then how does he see his funders different from all of the other ESG-focused asset managers out there? Most ESG funds, they invest based on ESG rankings of certain companies, judging by how clean they are, the size of their environmental footprint and the like. Uber thinks that that misses the point. First of all, companies that have significant social and, and environmental impacts you know, may get strong ESG rankings simply because they clean up certain parts of their supply chain. But his bigger point is that he doesn't think it addresses the real problem, which is that these ESG funds, they avoid the big, dirty or socially flawed companies such as oil, absolutely necessary to the economy and will continue to be around in one form or the other. But they're the ones that need to be pushed along or helped to change. And he thinks in not only will that help the environment, but that will actually result in strong investment returns. Talking of returns, how successful has this strategy been so far? And, and how do you think we should evaluate the fund? By returns, by board seats, by corporate change? Well, for the new, for inclusive capital, it hasn't really launched yet. So we can't really say about that. While at Value Act, he oversaw the Spring Fund, which was a separate fund within Value Act that focused on environmental issues. And that was up 30% net of fees last year. Uben says he's not really looking to replace boards, only maybe to get on them himself. In fact, he said he'd like to have less shareholders on the board from other investment funds because they might oppose the changes he wants. And naturally, for any fund, returns will be key. So that's something that we'll be looking to evaluate them going forward. So finally, what should companies and their advisors know about Inclusive Capital if they get a call from him or a member of his team? Well, he has a reputation, even when at Value Act, as being a relatively constructive activist. And in the case of Inclusive Capital, if he or his team are calling you, it probably means he likes what you're doing and would like to see you do more of it more quickly. For example, British Petroleum, he made a big investment in, in them because they started making a shift away from hydrocarbons, and he'd like to see them do it quicker. He said that he'd like to be one of the top three shareholders in any of the companies he owns, which gives him the personal clout to push the boards to take risks. You know, while he's done his fair share of corporate breakups and corporate sales in the past, he says he's not really looking for that currently. He's looking for boards where he can work with. And actually, if he wants to change anything, he'd like to change the shareholder base to one that's more supportive of environmental or social improvement initiatives. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. 
if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsights.com. Plus, join the conversation by using the hashtag ActivistInsightPodcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.